Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin and you would be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we'll be joined by Glenn Scrivener. Glenn is a broadcaster, ordained minister, director of Speak Life and author of The Air We Breathe, a book which makes us rethink where we find our beliefs and values. A challenging conversation, but before that, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was laid to rest yesterday. Her funeral was watched by hundreds of millions of people around the world who were brought together irrespective of their background or belief for this unifying event. Many watched the ceremony in churches, parks or town centres. Many watched with family and friends. Many watched alone. It was a solemn and awesome occasion. The contrast, the pomp and ceremony that Britain does so well, alongside the raw sadness of people grieving a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother. The country as a whole feels a sense of loss. We no longer have a monarch who lived and served during the Second World War. For many of us, it feels like we have lost a reassuring link with the past, a connection with our parents or grandparents' generations who have now gone. Yesterday marked the end of an era. But for one man, yesterday was an opportunity, a God-given opportunity, and I believe that he took it. Archbishop Justin Welby had a short sermon to deliver. Just moments earlier, new Prime Minister Liz Truss had read from John 14, most strikingly perhaps, Verse six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. This is an unmistakable claim from the carpenter of Nazareth. We cannot read those words and conclude that Jesus was misunderstood, that he was just a good teacher, merely a wise philosopher. If Jesus said those words, then C.S. Lewis's trilemma stands. He can only be a liar or a lunatic or else the Lord of all. There is no other credible alternative. The content of the Queen's funeral yesterday was surely directed by the will of the late Queen herself. She believed what Jesus says in those words. As well be said yesterday, Jesus does not tell his disciples how to follow, but who to follow. This Jesus, who on the one hand was so humble and tender, makes these earth-shattering, universe-creating claims about himself. This majesty and humility that we see in Jesus was reflected, albeit dimly, in the life of the Queen. She was the most famous woman on the planet, yet she was gracious and humble in her service, well beyond the call of duty, and well beyond what any of us would consider a reasonable retirement age. The Archbishop went on to say that we all will face God's merciful judgment, that Christ rose from the dead and offers hope for us all, and not the wishful hope that we so often speak of, but certain expectation of something not yet seen. Like many of us, 
I prayed that Justin Welby would use his sermon to preach the gospel. And I feel hugely encouraged by a prayer answered. Let us now pray that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes, ears and hearts of many who would turn to Jesus as their saviour. Let us also pray for King Charles, that when we sing God save the king, this too will be a prayer answered. And let's thank God for Justin Welby's words yesterday and for the millions who heard them. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared, says Peter, which means that we should prepare. Justin Welby had four minutes yesterday, but I'm certain that he took many hours in preparing. We probably won't get an opportunity to share the gospel with hundreds of millions of people at once, but we will get the chance to share the gospel with people maybe one at a time. One lesson we can learn from yesterday is to make sure we are ready, praying and preparing for what we shall say. Finally, this makes me consider a new our calling as Christians in politics and public life. It is surely to be servant hearted and faithful as the Queen was and to use whatever profile we may have to point people to Jesus when the opportunity arises, as the Queen also did and like Justin Welby did yesterday. For those who responded to the gospel message, having heard it yesterday and received Jesus as their saviour, those were four minutes that changed the world. You never know when your four minutes or 10 second opportunity may come. Be prepared. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest, I'm now joined by a pastor and the author of many books, but especially The Air We Breathe we're going to talk about today. Glenn Scrivener, you are very welcome. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Tim, for having me. Well, we would, of course, have been in the utterly, uh, impeccably glamorous surroundings of the Liberal Democrat Conference in Brighton had it not been cancelled for obvious reasons this, this week. Instead, we're in, you know, in, in virtual glamorous surroundings. I wanted to talk to you in particular about uh, the excellent book you've written, The Air We Breathe. Tell us why you gave it that title. Well, I grew up in Australia and I had uh, no idea how sweetly Australia smelt uh, until I left Australia because all the eucalyptus leaves are kind of mentholating the air. It's like a kind of a cough syrup that's carried on the breeze in Australia. It's very sweet air, but you don't notice it when that's the air you breathe every day. And it's only since I've left Australia and uh, come back into Sydney. Every time I come back into Sydney, I, I recognize the sweet smell. And I think that's what it's like with all our beliefs and our moral intuitions and our assumptions about how, how life works. We tend to think take things for granted like human rights and human equality and that compassion is the best way to run a society. All these things are the air we breathe, but we don't notice how distinctive our moral intuitions and assumptions are. So in the book, I try to take us out of the West by going to uh, non-Christian, but especially pre-Christian cultures and showing how the air that we breathe in terms of our moral assumptions is very particular. It's not universal. It's not natural. It's not obvious to believe in human rights and human equality and these sorts of things. These things have come to us through the Jesus revolution. And so what do Christians mean then by equality? You pick out seven values that um, you... Uh, map out and talk about how uh, we in in the West uh, we take them for granted, um, but they've got a very a Christian lineage lineage, if you like. What is it about equality that gives Christianity, or rather, uh, has such an obvious Christian locus? 
Well, again, you can see that by going to a pre-Christian culture and asking some of the greatest minds uh, whether they thought human beings were, were equal. If you ask mm -hmm. Plato, are human beings equal? He would say, well, obviously not. You know, you've got men and you've got women and you've got citizens and you've got barbarians, you've got masters, you've got slaves, you've got the wealthy, mm -hmm. you've got the poor. By any metric, you're going to be measuring difference. So where does this magical thing called equality exist? And, and Plato would have thought that that was um, a real stretch, that it was this theological belief that, that he could see no evidence for, which is interestingly how my friends think of God. They, they mm. think that God is this theological kind of uh, invention that there is no evidence for. And yet my friends also believe in equality. They believe the opposite of what Plato believed. They believe that every person, no matter their wealth, their rank, their status, their race, their religion, their sexuality, their gender, all people are equal. Where does that come from? Well, on the first page of the Bible, um, man and woman together are in the image of God and have dominion over the world. They have this kingly status, humanity as a whole. And then Jesus comes to be our brother and mm. to invite us into a family in which no one is Lord except he, and we are all brothers and sisters on an equal footing. And so it's Christianity that's really injected this sense of the full moral equality of all people. Now, obviously, many non-Christians and critics of Christianity will say, you know, come on, the Bible says negative and unequal things about things like sexuality. It seems to acquiesce over slavery. Isn't this the rewriting history a bit, Glenn, or have we got an answer to that? Well, the first thing I'd say is, why is that the criticism? I think it's a, I think it's a very valid criticism to bring to the Bible, but you've got to ask by what standard these criticisms are being made. Mm. And in my book, I look at seven values, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And one of the ways we know that those are transcendent values in our culture is that if something is unequal or cruel, or, or coercive or unenlightened or anti-science or restrictive or regressive, we think those, those things are mm. the worst. Mm. And I haven't plucked those seven criticisms at random. Those are a reversal of the seven values. Anything that is those seven negatives is the worst. Why? Because those seven positives are the greatest. Yes. So uh, are there genuine senses in which the church has failed at equality? I think at times there are. I, I think have, having a traditional sexual ethic does not mean that, that Christians are being uh, unequal. But are there cases in which the church has been unequal? Yes. Are there cases in which the church has been coercive and restrictive and regressive in all the wrong ways? Absolutely. Yeah. And in the book, I try to own those things about five or six times in the book. I say, here is a, a dreadful thing in Christian history, mm. but let's just think about why it's dreadful. It's mm. dreadful when we judge it by Christian standards and everybody's mm. judging the church by Christian standards, even if they're not Christians. Yeah. Now you do pick out those seven values which you've just um, run through. Uh, why did you pick them? So equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. What is the thinking behind the seven? Well, I began and I had six and I thought, well, that's a terrible, you can't have six. <laughs> biblically, biblically, you've got to have seven. Yes. So, um, also, I, what I'm doing is I'm mapping those onto seven kind of epochs. So with equality, I'm talking about Old Testament with um, 
Mm. Compassion, I'm talking about the New Testament, the arrival of Jesus. With consent, I'm talking about the early church. With enlightenment, I'm talking about medieval times. With science, I'm talking about the scientific revolution. With freedom, I'm talking about the abolition of the slave trade. And with progress, I'm bringing things up to the, the present day. So in, in a sense, it's arbitrary. I could have come up with 11. I could have come up with five. Um, but I, I think once once I do go through those seven, um, I've never really come across many people who are like, ah, no, I, I, I don't think that one fits. Um, perhaps the most contentious one is probably progress, um, mm. because obviously not all progress is good. And I, I, I have to you know, make my case that there is, there is definitely negative progress. But I do think as a Christian, I believe that Jesus' kingdom is working through like yeast works its way through a batch of dough. And there is, there is a proper sense of progress. Mm. But that's, that's where the seven come from. I mean, at the heart of the book is a, an understanding that there are such things as human rights and mm. they're often cited. We look at the outrages happening in Ukraine and we talk about abuse of human rights. We hear discussion in our own parliament about uh, the European Declaration on Human Rights, whether we're going to draft our own Bill of Rights. What do you think human rights are and who decides what they are? Do they have any durability? That, that is a key question, that second part of it. Who decides uh, what human rights are? Because it, if it is humans who decide what human rights are, humans are very good at drawing the circle of humanity so that it encompasses me and my tribe, but that it doesn't you know, encompass the clan down the, down the road or the, you know, the, 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 the nation over the sea. We are very good at drawing that circle ever tighter. And that's what we always do. And so I, I think human rights are either givens, they are, um, they are natural rights, which is what the medieval church would have sort of, sort of called them. They are those that we are born into simply by virtue of being a member of the human family. If they start to be um, honors that are granted by the powerful, we are in a very dystopian vision at, at mm. that stage. And so the, you know, even something like the, the Declaration of Independence um, in 1776, Thomas Jefferson, the deist, was framing this mainly. And, you know, even he could not escape the, this language of we are endowed by our creator with certain mm. unalienable rights. Um, and then he goes on to, to, to say that governments need to secure those rights um, and they need to do so by, by the consent of the governed. Um, but that language is very careful in the Declaration of, of Independence. It's, it's, it's very much the case of there are unalienable human rights that are given by our creator and government does not bestow those rights. Mm -hmm. Government only secures those rights. And if we move away from God-given rights and suddenly it's the powerful that are granting rights to other people, uh, I think we're in a lot of trouble. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Glenn Scrivener, author and ordained minister, in particular author of The Air We Breathe that we're discussing right now. Glenn, just picking up again on this concept of, of human rights, that there are many people out there who are brave warriors for human rights, who uh, disagree very strongly with Christianity and may think there's no God whatsoever so we're not saying that those people are without morality we're saying are they that they're just unclear about where their morality comes from 
Exactly. They have borrowed morality and, and sometimes their um, appreciation of and their living out of the values of Jesus' kingdom are far superior to mine. And in a sense, I've written the book for such people. I, I, I had a, a friend who wrote to me and uh, she has lived a costly life of service in, in sacrifice to values such as human rights and equality. And she has given herself for those values. But she once wrote to me and she said, Glenn, of course, you realize I could never be a person of faith. And in a sense, my whole book is an answer to, to my friends in mm. saying, you already are a believer. Uh, mm. I'm not inviting you to make a leap of faith. You're already midair, believing a whole bunch of stuff that really does not make sense without the foundations that the Bible gives to it. So I'm not inviting such people to take a leap of faith. I'm, I'm really inviting them to look at the ground beneath their feet. Do they have any foundations for the things they take for granted? Human rights cannot be proved. They are, they are not the result of, of a logical deduction or a scientific experiment. Mm. We take these things on faith. So my friends who live out beliefs in human rights can sometimes do so far better than I have. But I'm just wanting to say, you need some ground beneath your feet and only Jesus will do. I think there's a small tension. Maybe I'm wrong to think this, because on the one hand, you're saying that, you know, we are... Um, we have in, within us this sort of sense that there are rights and wrongs, that we believe in equality, we believe that consent is right, compassion is good, um, and that we get those from a peculiarly Christian understanding of the world, and therefore it's kind of part of our culture, part of the air that we breathe. And then that maybe cultures that um, have not been Christianized will therefore not necessarily have that same understanding. But at the same time, as Christians, we believe God kind of hardwired this morality into us anyway is it is there any conflict between that belief that it's it's well nature or or nurture or is it both of them i think um e even the things that we say conscience will point to um there's a cultural element to those things um so that people living under very different times for instance you know there's a, there's a famous letter that's that's written just a few years bc by a soldier in rome and he's writing back to his wife and he says you know uh, don't forget to sell the cow by springtime and you know bring in the harvest in in the autumn and um i know that you're pregnant if it's a boy keep it if it's a girl kill it and, and it's, just, it's just part of a letter and it just trips off his pen just so naturally. And I, I don't think that soldier had a twinge of conscience mm. in the same way that we do as modern 21st century people. Whether you're Christian or not, everyone has a massive twinge of conscience at that kind of mm. gender side. Mm. Um, and, and I think conscience is real, but I think conscience, as, as the Bible teaches, um, can be sort of cauterized, it can be hardened, it can be, it can be moved about by all sorts of um, human psychological and social conditions. And, and I think not, not just individuals can be utterly numb to what the conscience is saying. I think whole cultures for centuries can be utterly numb um, to what their conscience might be wanting to say. So yes. is there a true north? Absolutely. But is our compass broken? It, it totally is. That's great. Now, I wonder whether we're, we're looking at these issues and we are considering the impact on our society of the values that we hold dear and rooting them in Christianity. And I'm absolutely convinced you're, you're right in your, in your thesis. Is there a concern, as it may be the case, as Western liberal democracies move away from 
uh, Christianity or from believing it, uh, indeed sometimes seeking to tip exit out of public life, is there a danger that the values go to and that we end up seeing uh, potential risks to, to human rights and to the watering down of these values, even the throwing over of those values, if the source of those values, Christianity, uh, becomes something which is uh, dis- to be outside the public square? I think there's absolutely that danger. Oz Guinness talked about we're in a cut flowers kind of culture in which uh, the bloom has come from us being connected to our Christian heritage, our Christian source. And to the degree that we move away from that source, we are going to be wilting. And and I think that mm-hmm. that is absolutely right. And, and I, I would love to see a refreshment of our you know, values by a return to the source. I think mm-hmm. the, the the main reason why I wrote the book is not really for that purpose. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of assuming that there's still a little bit of bloom yeah. <laughs> um, out there in the culture. And I'm assuming that friends like my my friend who believes in human rights um will convince her that she has mm. she already is a believer and I want her to to pull on that thread until she meets the person. It's less my book is less a kind of weapon in the culture war or a um, a, a, a call to, I don't want people to come back to Jesus so we get his values. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the, that's the wrong way around. I think, hey, we have these values. I want to introduce you to the person um, who makes sense of those values. That's that's the way around. I want to do it. Yeah, and I can absolutely confirm there's nothing culture worry about this book at all. In fact, it's a really uh, conciliatory memo, if you like, to those people, many people who would. Um, the you know compassionate radical uh, believers in it in equality and and in human rights, and to help them to understand that actually the the radical source of their belief in in such rights turns out to be the person of Jesus Christ and indeed the Bible. Do you think that this uh, our our having a better understanding of where our values come from as a society, the best of our values come from? Um, that it comes from Christianity. Is that an aid to evangelism? Is that something that can help us to make the case? If you've got, you know, young people at university, young Christians at university, thinking about how they interact with their non-Christian friends on campus and the big discussions that you have when you are in that in that place, can this help us to, to present Jesus in a way that might make people think twice? I, I definitely have seen it work. Um, uh, whenever I go into a university, for instance, um, perhaps one of the first talks I'll do is something on, on human rights and equality. And you just you just see an entire room go from thinking I'm not a believer to recognizing, mm. oh, I'm a very strong believer and I can't account for my beliefs. Mm. Um, that, that, is, that has been a, a really interesting kind of first step in showing people that the, the old kind of well, I guess we used to call it the new atheism, but it's mm. it's it's old now. <laughs> um, in in terms of a very modernistic view of the world, and Richard Dawkins would characterize every every kind of religious person as a faith head. Mm. Um, I think we are so beyond that now, and I think people are absolutely recognizing that we have culturally contingent beliefs in all sorts of things that can't be tr- proved, that can't be demonstrated scientifically, and we're moving beyond that kind of scientism that says if you know if it can't be put into a test tube, it's not real. So step number one is showing people, yet yeah, you are already a believer. Step number two is saying those beliefs have specifically come from Christianity. And, and I think the historical case is just so strong now that anyone interested in looking into it 
can't mm-hmm. escape it. They they read Tom Tom Holland's Dominion, or they read Larry Seidentop's Inventing the Individual, or Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity, or on and on and on. These different books uh, are making that historical case that they are specifically Christian. And then I guess the next step is, um, well, will you surrender to the story? Will you surrender to the the thing that actually grounds what you mm-hmm. already believe? And I have seen many people take take that particular journey and that's the journey I, I try to take people on in the book and, uh, and and wonderfully you do it as well I wonder whether just looking at how we we run our societies and um, we look at equality compassion consent enlightenment science freedom and progress do you think that those five values um, necessarily lead us to believe that uh, our societies should be run as democracies or are there other forms of government that would be acceptable do you think well it's interesting i mean we've we've just had the the funeral of her majesty the queen yesterday and i you know i i wonder how long it will take before many republican arguments you know start to mm. to come to the fore um I, th- I think what you see, it, for instance, in the, the, the king's coronation that, that will happen at some point in the future um, is a, a profoundly Christian view of rulers who are anointed in order to serve and that that ruler must be under the law and not the source of law, but one who is under the law and has the covenant with their people um, and is one of the people and embodies the people and represents the people. That That is um, yeah. a, a profoundly Christian view. But then I've already mentioned the Declaration of Independence um, yeah. in which Thomas Jefferson says, the government must only be by the consent of the governed. That too is a profoundly Christian vision. Um, it was actually John Wycliffe, the Bible translator um, of medieval times, who was the first to pen the phrase, the rule should be of the people, by the people, and for the people. Mm-hmm. And really for him, that was a meditation on we're all made in God's image and so we're all equal. It was also a meditation on the priesthood of Christ. Though in a sense, we have sent our man to the seat of power, you know, like, like probably a hundred years ago, Tim, but you know, when, when you went to Westminster, they would have said, we're sending our man to Westminster, you know, we're sending our man to the seat of power. And there's there's something profoundly Christian about in the Ascension, you know, the man Christ Jesus has been sent to the seat of power to rule us as us. And that really gives you the strongest possible foundations for, for a democratic mandate that, that rule should be of the people, by the people and for the people. Um, so whether, whether you're a, a royalist and a monarchist or whether you're, you're a Republican and, and um, you, you might even believe in direct democracy, mm-hmm. um, in a sense, one of the lines in my book is that all our culture wars are basically we're, we're hurling Bible verses at each other. We've just mm. forgotten the references. Mm. Um, so as, as I you know, invite people to come home to Jesus, I'm not, coming, I'm not inviting them to come home to be a royalist or to be a Republican. Um, but I, I think we are living within the world that Jesus built and he can refresh that conversation yet again if we let him. But it certainly points, I'm sure, as you've just uh, suggested, to a kind of approach uh, by political leaders, which is about service uh, rather than lording it over others. The idea that um, if you are in power, whether you're elected, appointed, you've inherited it, however it might have um, come to be that you are in the position that you're in, you are uh, equal before God 
um, with all these other human beings who are equally um, you know, loftily, wonderfully created in the image of um, the living God. Uh, therefore, they're important and you must serve them humbly. So I think that absolutely does, uh, doesn't does mean that we have to be monarchists or republicans for the record. I, I think the constitutional monarchy works well, but I think it's absolutely permissible for people to have different points of view, but understanding services mm, yeah. at the heart of it all. Uh, obviously, well, you're you, a minister, said, Tim. You're a minister, which is just an extraordinary thing. You know, our rulers are called ministers. Yeah. Why are they called ministers? In the Roman Empire, they were worshipped as gods. You know? <laughs> and no, nothing shows the Christian revolution like the fact that we used to worship our rulers as lords over us, and now they are our servants. Amazing. Yeah, there's not a lot of foreign worship, but there you are. So that's good. At least <laughs> we're pleased that that is the state of affairs. Um, you don't need to be a Christian to believe these values. And and we've, you know, we've both of us uh, indicated people we, we know who... Um, you know, are, are bold, genuinely bold, brave warriors for for human rights, and yet so far haven't accepted Jesus Christ as as saviour. So this isn't us, um, and as you, the author of this book, it's not you saying to non Christians, you know, look, be better. <laughs> it is <laughs> right. It is, yeah, it's, yeah. it's you saying, you know, you you actually have got this, but he yeah. is. He is I'm saying you're better. I'm I'm saying to my friends, you're better. You, you like you are better than what your actual life philosophy would would allow you to be. Yeah. And the source of that is Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's radical stuff. I I, I absolutely love the book. Uh, I read it on, on holiday in Spain. Um, this this some of the only reason I'm not got it in front of me right now is because I lent it to my dad and he's loving it. Uh, also, oh. I can really, really, really recommend it. I think it's a it's an enjoyable read. But I think for anybody who engages with anybody who's got who's not a Christian but who's um, you know politically motivated and and believes that values are real and that human rights are worth fighting for, uh, this is a, a wonderful book to help to aid gently a, a conversation. And um, finally, just as we do um, wrap up, you know, my my, um, my my provocative title for this discussion, if we were going to have had it uh, at the Lib uh, Dem Party conference, which isn't happening this year after all for the obvious reasons, uh, was going to be God made you a liberal, you just don't realise it. Um, and <laughs> I, I, which is a little bit more provocative than anything you've written in, in the book. But I mean, so th that, that being the case, I mean, it's it's us saying that um, you don't need to necessarily turn all of your worldview on its head, but you do perhaps need to understand carefully where that worldview comes from. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 very much the case that you do not need to take a leap of faith. What you really need is some ground beneath your feet, because you're six miles in the air, <laughs> in a in a castle of ideas that has been built really by Jesus and, and only kind of, he, he makes sense. So yeah, just, it's trying to give people who don't think they are believers, uh, a language and a vocabulary, and then a grounding for saying some of your dearest intuitions hold truer than, you know, can I introduce you to the Jesus who grounds all of this? Beautiful. Well put, well summed up. Excellent book. Thoroughly recommend it. Uh, Glenn, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. I hope we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much, Tim. Each week, we give you the opportunity to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. Now, it might be about how an aspect of this world impacts us as Christians who work within it. Or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt to answer it. 
So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, this week, we've got a question from Jane in Manchester, and she asks, how did it feel singing God Save the King for the first time? Well, like the rest of us, it felt very peculiar. I sang it for the first time, I think, on the steps of Kendall Town Hall uh, on the Sunday that the declaration, the proclamation was made around the country. I spoke at the weekend at church with some older ladies who remember being at primary school when the Queen came to the throne. And they talked about how odd it was then to sing God Save the Queen, how they giggled about it uh, at school when they were sat and stood singing the song. It is peculiar. We will have to get used to it. But it's worth bearing in mind what the national anthem is. It's a prayer. We've been singing for the last 70 years, God save the Queen. Well, I think we can be reasonably confident that he has. And we see the content of the service uh, yesterday um, that was undoubtedly written by or certainly largely guided by the Queen's hand uh, herself. We can be sure this was a woman who trusted Jesus as her saviour. So God did save the Queen. And our prayer now must be that God will save the king, that he will endow King Charles with uh, wisdom and a long reign. But above all else, that he will come to know the saviour, Jesus Christ, just as his mother did. And in so doing, be a strong witness and example for the rest of the country. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's join together in prayer as we come to the end of our time. Loving Heavenly Father, in the aftermath of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II and of her funeral early this week, uh, we lift up to you her family, uh, her children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all those who knew her personally and miss her so dearly. We think of them knowing that once the funeral is over, for anyone, uh, there can be a moving on um, for those people who are not so close to the one who's passed away. And yet for those closest, that moving on takes some time. So we just pray for your comfort upon the family and that you would draw them to you, the source of eternal comfort. Lord, we thank you for what feels like a spirit of unity in our country over the last few days. People of different political and cultural perspectives who have united to pay tribute to Her Majesty, to her reign, and perhaps have seen a glimpse of what it was that motivated her, her faith in you, Lord Jesus. May you draw uh, people, more people, to look again at the faith which inspired Her Majesty the Queen. And may you maintain that unity in our country uh, for many uh, days and months, indeed years to come. As we move back to business, so to speak, and politics gets back to, to normal, uh, we think of our Prime Minister, new in post, her new ministers and all members of parliament and members of the devolved parliaments as well, as they come to terms with the cost of living crisis and the situation in Ukraine and many other serious issues that need to be addressed. Would you give them and us all great wisdom and compassion and your guidance as we seek to deal with these serious issues? All of these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. 
One last thing. Don't forget about our live recording of this podcast next Monday at 5.45pm at St James in the City in Liverpool. I'll be in conversation with Stephen Timms and I'd love for you to join us. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.